Welcome to the Cava Ships podcast, where we try and cut through the fog and the murk and shine a bit of light on naval and maritime issues of the day. I'm Chris Cervello. This week, we have a special edition of the Cava Ships podcast, as Chris and I spent most of the week visiting shipyards on the Gulf Coast. Over the next few weeks, we will share interviews and observations from our trip. So let's jump right into it. On this episode, we talk to Austell USA's Rusty Murdaugh from Mobile, Alabama, where we spent a full day touring the Austell shipyard with Rusty and his team. Thanks for being on the podcast, Rusty. Thanks, Chris. All right, great to have you here. And by the way, great to have just toured your shipyard. Uh, I've been here before. It's been a few years since I've been back. There's been a lot of changes. You guys are doing a lot of investment in your steel facility. You're involved in programs that I think they're far beyond the original uh, aluminum ships, the the DPF, the the expeditionary fast transport, and of course the total combat ship. You're still building those. The LCS is winding down. Um, But you have expanded into quite a number of other areas down here. You're the steel ship buildings, you're going to build uh, do salvage tugs for the U.S. Navy, and of course, you, you just uh, were awarded the Coast Guard offshore patrol cutter contract. Uh, you've got a lot happening. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Thanks for coming down and taking a look at our yard. Uh, we're really uh, happy to show it off and see the progress that we've made. A lot of the progress that you've seen today and the programs that we've been successful on are, are due to the hard work that's been going on over the last year and a half as we've restated our strategy and rebounded from. Um, the success that we've had on the LCS and EPF program to move into other areas to have a better chance of, of a more market share to grow into the shipbuilding industry and support our customers. So you're also, you're, again, you're, you're, you're now building, you're hopefully building ships with the Coast Guard. Yes, sir. Um, you are building parts of aircraft carriers. You are building parts of submarines. These are programs, especially the submarine and the, and the uh, aircraft carrier, this is stuff that people have not been associated with Austell. How did this come about? What are you doing? Yeah, when we revisited our strategy and our end goals, we wanted to find the right balance of opportunities for us to continue doing what we do, and that's building products on time and on schedule. We knew, unless we looked at the platform, where the majority of the money the Navy has is going to those kind of programs, the, coast, uh, the, the uh, submarines and the aircraft carriers, and we knew our yard was really never going to be capable of building those ships. So to be able to work with those great shipbuilders and be able to offer them what we do here uh, gave us a good, would give us a good basis of business that would, that would last 20, 30 years of revenue streams. So creating a backlog of revenue with those kinds of shipbuilders was a complementing uh, type product line for us that allows us to continue to stay focused in our primary objective, which is uh, building new ships and working on autonomy. So you're working with Huntington Ingalls on the aircraft carrier product, the, the, the Ford program. Yeah, specifically the Newport those? News Group, yes. Right. What are you building for that? So right now we're starting out with the aircraft elevators, the three main elevators that lift the aircraft up up and down, uh, the hydraulics, and we've got on CB-80 and I think CB-81, two aircraft carriers worth. Uh, we're already starting to do potentially some service work for them before we build the elevators, and we're recording additional work for them on the steel side of things uh, to enable them to be able to to keep schedule with their customer. And of course, General Dynamics Electric Boat builds uh, the, is the prime for the Virginia class submarine and the Columbia class submarines. And now you're building significant components for that. We will be. We've got a number of our employees training to meet their requirements and specific standards, just like we have our requirements and standards here. Uh, we have, we're excited to be able to bring that work down to the south and keep it in the south and be able to, to deliver them units as they need them. 
we'll start off slow and then we'll speed up and catch up really fast as we grow that business. And we see that being a long-term product line for us and probably growing to be about 20 to 25% of our revenue stream in the future. So you're building the command and control space? Yeah, specifically, that's what I, they've asked us to take a look at. And um, we'll be able to initially start those in a, um, uh, what I'll call a fit-out stage and then eventually build the modules themselves. Rusty, you mentioned um, three lines of effort. You talked a little bit about new construction and the work you're doing. Uh, you've talked a little bit about services. Uh, what I found the most fascinating today is the discussion on autonomy. Uh, can you provide our listeners an update on the work that you guys are doing on autonomy and kind of, you know, where are you and, you know, where are you going over the next several months for the Navy? Yeah, so it was about five years ago the Navy was giving us hints that this is where they saw the future. And in business, we need to go where the hockey puck's going to go. And so we've been listening intently, and we, we stumbled our first couple of years trying to fear, work, figure out where our niche was. Was it in the programming side? Do we want to be prime? Do we want to be sub? Do we, and where we've, we settled in is teaming with some really great partners uh, to be able to be the provider of choice, whether it's small autonomy, medium autonomy, or large autonomy. And we've been very fortunate to team up with uh, shipyards uh, and, and autonomy providers in the small side, like with Sailgrown. We've got a great relationship with them, building small autonomy capability. Uh, going all the way up to our current ship, the EPF-13, which we've been investing some of our own time and money into to make that one of the largest autonomy ships in the Navy fleet. And then, of course, in the mid-sized market, we're working with uh, some of the more classified programs, smaller programs, and we hope to build and grow into the MUSV side of that market. So, yeah, we've got programs on all three ends of the, the spectrum, and we want to be the autonomy provider of choice in the future. I think what's most exciting, at least for me, was that all of this kind of builds on itself, right? I mean, you know, you mentioned small, medium, large. I mean, obviously, those are that's a level of effort or the, the type of platform. But the lessons that you learn on a small platform have applicability to a large platform and vice versa. And you guys have really closed that learning loop for both you as Austell, but also for the Navy in general. Yeah, we, we just want to be the best shipbuilders we can be. And with, with our partnerships and our learning on all those platforms, they, they very much align. I think there's another layer, too, that you may not have seen yet today is, is that all these layers on new construction, whether they're new construction for programs or autonomy, create an opportunity in the services market. So although autonomy is relatively new, these ships will also need to be monitored. They'll need to be repaired and maintained. So as we establish a global front foot, uh, footprint to provide services to our new construction, we're keeping that in mind on the services too, which is giving us really good opportunities like we talked to you today about a retrofit opportunity for us. And that's the services market starting to play out before the new construction market's really finished. I've had the uh, opportunity to visit Austell a few times. Um, for listeners that haven't, you guys are not the same shipyard maybe that many navalists or uh, former uh, Navy folks have visited. I mean, this shipyard looks and feels a lot different. I don't mean that good or bad. It's just different. Can you describe the differences that uh, folks would notice right off the bat when they visit Austell? Yeah, we take that as a compliment, by the way. Um, not that there's anything wrong with the traditional shipyards, but we took a view with our, our chairman of the board of our parent when he came in and said, hey, I want to create a shipyard in the United States. And there's not many people that want to go do that. But when to do that, to be successful, we needed to have a different view. And so when you come to Austell, the first thing that you'll notice that we hear a lot is, is that we build ships differently. Um, and we do. We, we build them like you would a widget. The yard is set up to handle all types of ships from 70 feet to 700 feet uh, from all types of complexities, whether it's something as, as uh, basic as a dry dock to something as complex as a warfighting uh, ship. 
but the people that are trained here, um, they're flexible, they're agile, they, they move throughout the organization. And the, the same thing with our equipment. Our, our equipment stays the same and the line is continually moving. So at any point in time, you can come out to the yard and you'll see uh, three weeks ago where there might be a module for one of the ships and one part of the building that's in another. And so having a moving line, building upside down, using the configurations of our, our craning and rig system, which you see today, that's the biggest thing most people see. And then maybe the final thing is, is they, ever, they, they will always leave and saying, hey, the people are great. We've got one of the best yards uh, capabilities here. Our people are always moving. They're part of our process improvements, and, and our people tell us how to do things better, and we listen to them. Obviously, COVID had lots of impact on uh, all sorts of industries, but maybe the most lasting beyond just the supply chain is the people side. What sort of things did you learn and what lingering effects from COVID are you seeing, not necessarily from a health standpoint, but from, you know, the workforce in general? Are, are you still tracking with your workforce um, that maybe are either opportunities or challenges for you guys today? Yeah, I would say that, that you can't find a more patriotic group of people than shipbuilders in the United States of America. So when um, uh, Secretary of the Navy, uh, the president told the Secretary of the Navy, we need all our shipbuilders to keep working, we kept working. Um, the hardest part for me was as uh, people were getting sick and we didn't have solutions for them. Uh, maybe the worst time in my career is having to call two spouses, losing two of our employees uh, to COVID was tragic. Um, we, we don't know exactly how they caught it, but they caught it and, and, we, and we lost two family members and people are really important to the way we run here. So overcoming that, having to um, mandate a COVID um, vaccination program here, one of the few yards to do so, was also not a, a fun thing to go do, but safety is important at Austell. We were the safest, safest shipyard by far in the nation, and if that's what we had to do to protect our people, that was the decision we made. Unfortunately, we lost some good shipbuilders and family members, um, but uh, we've rebounded and we haven't missed a day. COVID has not stopped this yard from continuing to operate. And as of today, although COVID comes and goes, it's part of our norm, like it is for everybody else, and the shipyard must go on. And our, our people come to work, and they come to work every day willing to do whatever it takes to build ships. So I, I first came down here some years ago. The yard was relatively new. Uh, one of the, the, the real unique attributes of this facility here in Mobile is that at the time, you were, you lost all hostel and also USA, was able to build a yard and lay it out the way they wanted to. Most uh, shipbuilders have been around for a while. They, their facilities have been in that location for a long time. They've inherited them, they've adapted them. They're, everybody's a slave to their geography in some form. Uh, you were unique in that you, your layout, your, your workflow in the yard was, was designed that way. Now, some years later, you are changing that. You're adapting as everybody does as time goes on. So you're you're moving into steel in a big way. You're moving away from from uh, aluminum and from an all aluminum production to you'll retain some of that capability. You'll still do some of that, but it looks like you're focusing primarily on steel. So we've just seen a very new um, steel panel production line. Um, you're expanding your footprint, your geography around here. You've bought uh, fire land on the other side of the river. Uh, bought a new floating dry dock that's yours now after all these years of being dependent on somebody else's dry dock. That's how you launch your ships. Uh, it's pretty important to, to your production. You now control that. Can you talk a bit about a lot of the, the capex and the capital investments 
that you've been making here, and you're not done. This is this is by no means a finished product to where we have today. No, it's a journey, and I think that's where it starts. Is that uh, we have a philosophy: culture, strategy, economics. And you know, in our earlier days, we didn't have a lot of cash that we could reinvest. We'd spend it on, on developing the yard. And over the years, we've become much more successful economically. And we funneled that back into having the right culture. And now that we've got the right culture, we're establishing the right strategy, and that strategy will produce the right economic result. And so in doing so, we think far out. Um, even though today we've had a lot of success, we're thinking 30 and 50 years out on our facility structure. Even though we have a dry dock today and another one on order, we'll be at two dry docks, we're thinking about how we could have a third or fourth dry dock. Um, when we look at our people, we don't look at just the people that we have. We, we look at the, the 18 four-generation shipbuilders that we have, families that are here, and we think about how do we double or triple that. Uh, we think about um, strategy on how do we set ourselves up not only for ships that are current size, but sizes of ships that may be out of our reach years ago, and how do we enable the yard to go do that. And it's because we think outward and strategically all the time that we're challenging ourselves to question what decisions we may have made in the past, we're making today, and which ones we have to make in the future. But it all starts with having the right strategy and not putting, uh, all starts with having the right culture and not putting strategy at a culture or putting economics at a strategy. So quite frankly, as I look at opportunities, whether they're organic or M&A, we won't do a great deal because it's financially sound unless we've got the right team to go do it with and the right strategy to deploy. And when you put people first and you put your processes first, these are the results that you get, and we fundamentally believe in that. So uh, let's go back to something Chris was talking about, autonomy. Um, there are a number of companies that have been interested in autonomy. Clearly, it's, it's an element that's going to gain an importance in the future in ship construction. Uh, you, you, Austell, have been one of the most active of any people invested in this. Uh, you certainly have been more public with a lot of your projects than a lot of other people. A lot of people said absolutely nothing. Uh, people said, you said a lot. You put out nice images. You, you're going to talk about concepts. Um, the, the future right now in terms of how fast what will happen is pretty clear. The, the only thing that really is clear is that at some point this stuff will be happening. Um, but right now you are, you have one of your um, EPFs, Exhibitionary Vice Transports, Avalanche Colon, which is on an extended series of sea trials right now because I think you've partnered with L3 Harris uh, developing autonomous systems. I, I hear you, I mean, right now, as we speak, um, the ship is out off South Florida somewhere. Tell us about that. This, this autonomous system, how did this come about? Because my understanding is this was not a Navy initiative. This is something that the shipyard itself lobbied for with Congress. Congress agreed for it. Congress added, a, added funding in here. And um, this, this is a big ship. This isn't some small uh, crew boat um, that, that, that's been modified. This is, this, is, this is a big boat. Yeah, so autonomy is cool. It's the future. Um, we've said that many times, that the future is where we need to be today. And so whether it's the small, the medium, or the large, but I will tell you, um, as much as the ship normally wouldn't go out on four trials or even a fifth, it's not because the ship has any issues. Right. The ship is 99% complete. Um, we're, we're playing with that ship to just push its limitations, just to see how it reacts. Uh, Today's trials that are going on right now, we're looking for storms. We're looking for heavy weather. 
Um, and when the weather isn't there, the guys get a little upset because they, they're actually looking to put the, the ship in difficult situations just to measure what it's doing. And after each trial, we come back and we make adjustments. And the partnerships that we have with L3, with Lighthouse, and others that we use and partner with are all about how do we take technology to the next state. Um, I would say that we do work uh, closely with the Navy by listening so much more so than just, just saying because the, the Navy allows us to know where they want to be. And then we, cre we put creative ideas in front of them and we put it in front of Congress and we put it in front of everyone else to push uh, ourselves and they push us to try to meet the limits and needs of our future wars and the future needs of these ships. And uh, it's a fun partnership that we have with everybody, um, but uh, we're just pushing for the future, and we believe we're in the future now. As Chris mentioned, it's been a great day, and this has been a, a you know, fascinating conversation. Last week, the CNO rolled out his latest version of the NAV plan. There was some discussion of uh, force structure uh, for the future. Um, but some of the comments from the Navy was that one of the limiters, in addition to, to money, one of the limiters um, was capacity in the yards. Um, I, I wonder, without putting you on the spot, um, if you could respond to that and you know your, your thoughts on that. And what do you need to hear from this CNO, the next CNO, the CNO after that, to, to sort of be a, a partner with the Navy so that as the Navy wants to grow, you guys are right there with, with them and that you know industry isn't a limiter, um, you know, if, if that's actually the case. Yeah, so... I've been in shipbuilding only five years, 36 years in aerospace and defense. And what I, what I will tell you is that you want to ask one person from your customer, it's not the perspective of all, right? <laughs> uh, and I do believe the Navy believes it needs more capacity. Um, but I do believe most Navy folks or anyone that comes to our yard sees that we have excess capacity. You can see it in the line. Um, we're a line that, that stacks modules one after the other, whether it's two ships or three ships in a row, it doesn't really matter. They're staggered. And so when you have a line like ours, it's easier to see capacity. It's not always easy to see capacity in other yards. If you see a ship being built in a dry dock, it doesn't have the capacity to put another one in. We're building ships and modules so that by the time that they're launched, they're 93% complete. And when you build them the way we do, there's a lot of excess capacity. So from our perspective, even though we've had some great success and we're really humble about what we've been able to do, we're really only at about 60, 65% capacity right now. And uh, it's just more important to me that the Navy knows that we have excess capacity to meet their needs. And I'm not sure what they see at the other yards to see, but uh, if they don't believe us, we welcome to come here and, and see what we've got. How about on the services side as well? Same thing, excess capacity there in terms of being able to take care of not just the ships that you all um, have constructed, but we talked about that there's a possibility to do the uh, services with the frigate. I mean, is there capacity there uh, as well? Should I mean, should things heat up? Should op tempo increase? I mean, where are you on the services side of the house? Yeah, so that's an interesting question. I'm glad you asked because our philosophy isn't just to build a product. We design the product, we build the product, we service the product all the way through its life cycle. And that's a new thing for Austell being a new shipyard. So when you get an Austell US product that's out of us, we're going we're gonna to be there for you throughout the service life of that, even to our first two ships that we built here that were commercial. And so we follow our ships wherever they are, and we put up service centers in Singapore, we support the ships in Guam. We have a crew in Latin America, I can't specifically tell you where, but it's where an LCS is that we're maintaining that ship and whatever its needs are. Um, that's also to help the crews be successful with our ships, but it's exploded from the perspective of not just working on our ships, but we've opened our aperture to say that we're open to working on other people's ships. So one of those ships that we're working on is the other class LCS. 
Uh, we've booked a number of opportunities and uh, in, in contracts. We booked another one this last week. Uh, I think we're running anywhere from six um, PMAVs in a row, or six PMAVs at one time. Uh, and one of the luxuries that we have here in the South is we can take our crews here that built the ships and put them in the services model. And there's no one that knows that ship better than us that have built it. And as we work on other people's ships, we'll learn that ship as well, and we'll be able to service that product as well. And that's important to us that we're known for a provider, just not of, of the ship, but we're, we're going to be there for you to make sure you get the, the use of the ship the way you designed it, the way you built it, and the way you want to run it. So are, are you referring to San Diego with, with, a, with a Freedom class? Um, we're working on uh, Freedom and Independence class, and we're working on the East Coast and the West Coast. And then we've got Alconis work going on, mostly on our class. In uh, San Diego, you have uh, you bought a shipyard. You're expanding that. This existing shipyard is pretty small. Um, you're expanding it. You're building new facilities. You are you bought a new floating dry dock to put out there. That floating dry dock apparently uh, it'll it'll hold not just LCSs, but it's also designed to service intended to serve to service the new frigates, the Constellation class frigates. Can you talk just a little bit about the expansion there? Yeah, so just like in the new construction strategy for looking out into the future, um, by the way, I've got to take a shout out to the, the Port of San Diego uh, and the Navy uh, helping us get there. That's a real difficult spot. There's not a lot of real estate to find waterfront. And we really appreciate the relationships that we've built with that community, and we're looking forward to building even more relationships with that community. But they have allowed a shipbuilder from Amelia to go over there and put a new yard in. And so that yard will move quick on its expansion. We're excited to have our dry dock that's under construction now put out there. Uh, we're excited to put the one that we're building out there and then hopefully service it as part of our strategic growth. But more importantly, we do. We want to have a model that can grow not just to service our own LCSs and the other LCSs, but be able to accommodate frigates and that big class service side, as well as utilize that yard to support anything on the autonomy market and anything else that's in our um, range of control and what we have out there. So we will grow to 400 plus people in less than two years. And that's something Austell's got a, a legacy of doing is ramping up pretty quick and meeting those needs. And after the dry docks there, we plan to keep it pretty busy doing topside work and uh, DSRA work for our, our class of frigate. All right, folks, well, we, we want to thank Rusty Murdoch, the president of Austell USA Shipbuilding, for speaking with us and also for hosting us for a visit today. It's really been a fascinating visit. We have learned a lot, and thank you very much, sir. Yeah, you're welcome anytime. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Again, thank you to Rusty Murdaugh and the Austell USA team down in Mobile, Alabama for hosting us. Um, as I said, we will share more insights and interviews from our week on the Gulf Coast over the next couple weeks. Before we depart for the week, we want to take a few moments and remember surface warfare officer legend Paul X. Wren. Captain Wren was an accomplished naval leader and successful businessman. His career in the Navy spanned almost three decades and encompassed challenging positions in a multitude of key operational assignments and combat encounters. As a surface warfare officer, his professional path took him from the rivers of Southeast Asia to the command of the U.S. Navy's most sophisticated ships the guided missile frigate Samuel B. Roberts, FFG-58, and the Aegis cruiser Leyte Gulf, CG-55. Wren was commanding officer of guided missile frigate USS Samuel B. Roberts when his ship struck a mine in the spring of 1988 while on escort duty in the Persian Gulf. A staunch advocate of intense training, Wren says the ship was saved thanks to cool, well-prepared sailors in his crew. The story of Samuel B. Roberts doesn't happen on April 14, 1988. It happens long before that, Wren was fond of saying. 
He went on to say, the story of preparedness, combat readiness, strong leadership, and everything else starts way in advance. Captain Wren was the recipient of the United States Congress 1989 National Day of Excellence Award, the 1989 Stephen Decatur Award for Operational Excellence, and the 1995 U.S. Navy League John Paul Jones Award for Inspirational Leadership. In 2008, Paul Wren was inducted into the Surface Navy Hall of Fame. This week, Paul Wren passed away, leaving children, grandchildren, and thousands upon thousands of naval officers that were better because of his leadership and the sharing of lessons learned. We have no way of knowing if the United States Navy will further go into harm's way, although a look at the headlines, one can only guess that it's on the horizon at some point. For those that knew Paul Wren, they are better officers, better people, and certainly better prepared to go into harm's way because of the time he took after his retirement to share the lessons learned and to share why being combat prepared was so important. We ask you to remember Paul and his family, and we thank him for all that he did for our Navy and our nation. That does it for this week. As always, our thanks go out to Vaga Maradian and the Defense and Aerospace Group for their support. Be sure to follow us on Cavish Ships on Twitter. And remember, this podcast is available on iTunes, Google Play, iHeartRadio, SoundCloud, and Spotify. I'm Chris Cervello for Chris Cavus. Thanks for listening and bye-bye.